I was going to move it back, but it seems like we... Uh, let's go to the 50. All let's right. go back. We're going to go back, yeah. You can leave it there. We're going to move back, yeah. We'll move back. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be fine. Good morning. We are going to move the class back this way for this morning's Bible class. All right. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know some people are still getting their seat, and that's all right. But I figured we move it back for a little closer group this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll pick up where we left off. I hope everybody will be able to see the PowerPoint from here. I believe that we will be able to see it. 1 Corinthians 1. And what I'll do as everybody is getting set is just briefly review what we talked about last time. And then we'll go ahead and get into our lesson for this morning's class. So in the last class, we went ahead and introduced the book of 1 Corinthians and Paul's occasion for writing. We talked about the the place of Corinth being a place where Paul went on a second missionary campaign with Silas and Timothy in Acts 18. In Acts 18, really verses 1 through 17, Paul goes there and preaches and he begins the Corinthian congregation. Then Paul wrote to them later on as he had left the place there. And if you divide up the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see in the first six chapters, Paul deals with problems that they're facing, things he says that he heard about from Chloe's household. And then in chapter 7 through 16, he continues to address things that they had previously written to him about. And you'll see this phrase, now concerning, now concerning this, now concerning that. In chapter 7, verse 1, it's in chapter 12 and chapter 16 in verse 1 as well. Corinth was a large city with a mixed population, and we talked about some of what Paul was experiencing as he had Jews in the congregation and Gentiles, individuals who were rich, and also those that didn't have much financially. And chapters 1 through 4, we'll stay there this morning. They address the division that was taking place because of the preachers there. And Paul writes in these first four chapters to say he wants the Corinthians to be united. And the way that they can be one in Christ is to view these preachers that taught them the gospel in the right way and not be divisive. And so now let's go ahead and begin. We'll read verses 1 through or 10 through 17 and then we'll begin. I guess that'll be good enough for us to see. But remember, what's the theme of chapter one? Does anybody remember what we talked about as far as a theme that covers the entirety of chapter one? The calling of the Corinthians as Christians. And so that's what Paul is going to focus in on. We highlighted these last time, how often this word being called shows up again and again. And he's calling them to unity in Christ. So first Corinthians chapter one, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that I baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, and beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of his power. And so in verses 10 through 17, Paul is calling them out of division and into unity with each other. I believe this is working. All right. In verse 10, we talked about this last time. This is where we left off. Paul says, I beseech you or I beg you that you might all speak the same thing. In verse 10, this word that Paul uses, it means to beg, to implore someone. Paul is calling them as an apostle. He could command and there is a command in this. But there is also this idea of a petition. Paul is saying, I want you all to speak the same thing, be of the same mind and in the same judgment. This is a key verse for the book. Paul's appeal in verse 10 is really his appeal throughout the entirety of the rest of the 16 chapters. Speak the same thing, be of the same mind and of the same judgment. And the Corinthians could do this because they've all been called by the same gospel into the same family to be the people that God wants them to be. What are some of the consequences of division in the body of Christ? And why does Paul make a big deal about it in the book of First Corinthians, but also throughout his writings throughout the New Testament? Hold your hand in First Corinthians and just notice some of the times that Paul appeals to this. And be thinking about this idea. Why does Paul make such a big deal about unity throughout the New Testament? And why is he doing it here in First Corinthians? Notice Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. There's this similar appeal. And normally when Paul is launching into this, where he's basically begging congregations to stay united and stay together. He starts in with that language in Ephesians four, one through three. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you or I beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering for bearing one another in love. And then he says in verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes down through the seven ones in verses four through six. But his point is, again, he uses that word calling. And then he says, Hey, do whatever you have to do to stay together. Now go to Philippians chapter two. Similar idea in Philippians chapter two. He starts out with what brought them together. The old King James has, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, fulfill you my joy. Verse two, that you be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or envy or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, each esteem others better than themselves. And he says, have the mind of Christ in Philippians 2, 5. So in First Corinthians 1 and verse 10, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then into Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, there's this same appeal. Be unified. Be one. You're all one in Christ. God has called you. You have the same fellowship and love of Christ. Why is this such a big deal for Paul? And why should it be a big deal for us? What's the big, the big emphasis? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's power in unity. The example that's mentioned in the negative is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 with the unity that they had in trying to build a tower to heaven. And God says, hey, if they stick together, nothing will be impossible. Jesus says a similar thing in Mark 3, 24 and 25. If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom will not what? Stand. But the reverse must be true. If a kingdom's united, it will stand. And if a house is united, it will stand. And so God often wants his people to be together. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. There's always something trying to divide us. Think about the Corinthians and everything that would be against them. Well, I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. And then there's male and female and then rich and poor. And Paul saying, when you come into Christ, you leave all those things at the door. You still are those things. Galatians three, when Paul says in Christ, there's neither male nor female bond nor free. All of those distinct distinctions. 
Paul's not saying you give those things up. If you're a female, you're still a female. If you're a slave, you're still a slave. If you're free, you're still free. But what he means is we no longer look to those things as our chief identity. You no longer say, hey, this is what makes me who I am. Now you've been baptized into Christ. Galatians 3:27. For as many as you as have been baptized into Christ have put him on. And now when people see us, the first thing that should matter is the fact that we're one in Christ. All right. Anybody else on that? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. More about that. Both of those things, really just focusing on the gospel of Christ and calling ourselves after preachers in a moment. But go back to first Corinthians chapter one and notice what Paul does in verse 10. He doesn't just say, I want you all to be one. He says, I implore you. I beseech you. And then what does he say after that? I appeal to you. What? How does he identify them? Right in verse 10, I appeal to you. If you have the old King James, I beseech you. Then what's his next statement? How does he identify them or classify them? Brothers, right? This is a Greek term, aldelphoi. It means brothers and sisters. It would cover both genders. Why in introducing unity would he then remind them you're in the same family? What's the point of that? They had to be. But he's also saying this so that they remember, hey, when you do fight and bite and devour one another, you're doing it to your own spiritual family. I appeal to you, brothers, that you all speak the same thing. Remember, you're not just people who share some of the same religious views and come to the same building maybe once or twice a week. It's bigger than that. Now in Christ, your relationship is graduated, not just to good friends. Above that, he's saying, you Corinthians are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I want you to remain that way. In Matthew 23 and verse 8, Jesus told his disciples, you're all brethren. You're all in the same family. One more thing about unity that we should emphasize and then we'll have to move on for time's sake is we need to be one in Christ because it is also evidence to the watching world that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I don't know. Maybe you've met people before. I have. And this might be an excuse on their part, maybe, but not totally. They say, well, I'm really not interested in Christianity because one, sometimes people say, well, Christians are hypocritical. But the other thing that sometimes comes up is why would I become a Christian when you all don't even get along among yourselves. There's this group believing this and that group believing that. And you all can't figure it out yourselves. And maybe that's an excuse and they'll give an account for that. But Jesus does say in John 17, 20 and 21, he wants us all to be one. For what reason? That the world may believe that God sent him. So when we're united, the world says, well, maybe Jesus is who we really claim to be. But what about when we're divided? We give people more and more reasons in that division to disbelieve and to not come to Jesus like they should. And so our unity is not just for ourselves. It is about that, but it's bigger than us. It's about a watching world that needs to see if there's ever going to be unity in the world. It'll come because we've united on the only thing that truly matters. And that's Jesus. Daryl. Yeah. Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, only by strife comes contention or only by pride comes contention. And so whenever there's an issue going on like this, there's normally somebody or maybe both parties that have pride in the way. You mentioned matters of judgment. This is going to come up in the book of Corinthians, first Corinthians in chapters eight, nine and ten. Paul will bring up an issue of eating meat that's been offered to idols. And he's going to say we can have different opinions on this, but we can still be united if we are who God wants us to be. And if we approach things as we should. Romans 14 is another one of those chapters where everybody doesn't have to view things exactly the way that I do. 
But if we maintain the spirit and the mind of Christ, we can still be united and be the people that God wants us to be. Now, let's notice their specific issue about unity. It's in verses 11 and 12. The house of Chloe told Paul that they were divided over preachers. And these were the men they were divided over. Some said they followed who in verse 12? Paul and then others who? Apollos and then Cephas. Who is Cephas? That would be Peter. And then the last group would be those who said that they followed Christ. And so you could appreciate that all these men were pretty good preachers. Paul was the one that initially went to the Corinthians and preached to them in Acts chapter 18. He says this about himself in relation to the Corinthians. I'm your father in the gospel. I'm the one that has begotten you in the gospel of Christ. The Corinthians were Christians because Acts 18 and verse 8, many of the Corinthians hearing and believing Paul were baptized. Now, Paul was impressive especially as a writer. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, he says about himself what others had said about him. His speech, not so impressive, but his writings were very much so. And then the next man is Apollos in Acts 18. What do we know about Apollos? What type of preacher was he? Well, Luke tells us in Acts 18, 24 through 28, he was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. That means that he knew his stuff, especially concerning the Old Testament, but he was also eloquent and that he could get it out and people could grasp it and understand it. And after Aquila and Priscilla straightened him out about the baptism of John, he became a mighty force in the New Testament church. You think about Peter, the first person to preach the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. He's always listed first whenever the apostles are listed. He wrote two New Testament books. A person may want to align themselves with Peter. Now, in the New Testament... We don't have any record of Peter associating directly with the Corinthians, but somehow, some way, they came under the sway of his influence. And there was a group in Corinth who would say, hey, we're of Peter. And then lastly, of Christ, as he's mentioned here, they would view this in the sense of the founder of the Christian faith. He is the foundation that our faith is built on, but he's not just the man. He's more than that. He's the Messiah. Now, all of these preachers were great men, if you look at them as we should, merely as preachers and messengers of the word of God. But none of them were worthy of being followed. None of them were worthy of being worshipped in the way that the Corinthians were going about doing this. And so that was the problem that Paul wanted them to get over. Don't be divided over preachers. They brought this in. And this is why we started last week by talking about the culture in ancient Corinth. There was it was a city of philosophers. And people would have their various groups and the philosophers that they held to in this school of thought and these people that learn from this different individual. And when the Corinthians became Christians, well, they just brought that same mentality in. Well, I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was taught by Apollos and I was taught by this person. And Paul's saying, don't be divided over preachers. Included in the list is Paul, right? Wouldn't you want to be in this list? Paul's saying, don't even divide over me. I'm unworthy of being divided over by you, Corinthians. Be united and be one in Christ. Now, There's a difference between acknowledging the gifts and talents that God's leaders possess without getting into these sort of partisan divisions. The Bible teaches us to respect those who have taught us the gospel. Right. Hebrews 13 and verse seven. You can acknowledge somebody as a great communicator, but there's a big difference between doing that and then worshiping somebody or calling ourselves by individuals names like the Lutherans have done and other groups. Even when the leaders say don't do this, there's a big difference between that. And just acknowledging somebody's gifting and talents. The Bible says to do one of those things, to give honor to whom honors do. But we're never to worship men. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter preached to Cornelius, the first Gentile, when Peter comes to his house, what does Cornelius do as soon as he sees Peter? He falls down to worship him. 
But in Acts 10 and verse 26, Peter says, get up, don't worship me. Why? What's Peter's reasoning? Why is he unworthy of worship? I'm just a man. And that's true of every preacher you've ever heard or ever will hear. They're just men. Even angels in the book of Revelation twice, in Revelation 19 and verse 10, and in chapter 22 and verse 8, John is amazed at what he sees. We read about it and we're impressed and a little confused, but as John is seeing all of this, he's just awestruck and he falls down at the feet of this angel to worship him. And the angel says, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant in God's kingdom with you. I'm unworthy of worship. And that's what Paul was driving at in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Do not divide over preachers because at the end of the day, we're just men. Paul has some questions for them in verse 13 about what they need to be thinking about concerning worship and praise to God alone. And these are the questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course, these are rhetorical questions, all designed to give negative answers. So the only person that we can follow is the person who checks these boxes. Is Christ divided? No. Whoever was crucified for us and the one into whose name we were baptized, that's the individual that we need to follow and not any other man who has taught us the gospel. And then the last thing is Paul's primary focus was on preaching the gospel. In verses 14 through 17, when Paul says that Christ did not send him to baptize, but instead to preach the gospel, he is not saying that baptism isn't important. What Paul is saying is this. His primary goal was not to be the one administering the baptism, but to preach the gospel that ultimately led to people being baptized. I've been on mission trips before, and it's the custom in foreign places or really the rule of thumb with most preachers I've gone with to not baptize any of the people when we go to these different places to preach. I have a friend. His name's Bob Bauer. He's been going to Ghana, West Africa for maybe 20 to 25 years. I went with him on a trip and he told me in all of his years and going to Ghana, he's never baptized one Ghanaian. And I said, well, why not? He said, I wouldn't want to cause a problem. And maybe after we leave, someone says, well, I'm special. I was baptized by an American. I was baptized by Brother Bob. He has a lot of influence over there. He's done a lot of help and a lot of preaching. And the last thing he wants is for someone to say that they were baptized by him as if that puts them above other individuals. Now, he's preached and many people have responded to the gospel at his preaching and have been baptized into Christ. But he didn't want to be the one to administer it because at the end of the day, guess what? It doesn't really matter who baptizes us, does it? It matters into whose name we were baptized. If it mattered who we were baptized by, we'd all be in trouble. We'd have to spend the rest of our days making sure that the person who baptized us remained faithful and was everything that they should be or somehow it corrupt us. But we can't be saved because of the influence and the virtue of the one who baptized us. We're saved because we're baptized into the name of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so we can all have preachers we love to hear and have our favorite preachers, but beware of exalting preachers. Above their influence. It's a dangerous thing. Maybe somebody's influenced you and been a great focal point in your life. That's great. But at the end of the day, preachers are just men. And it does damage to a preacher to be exalted in an unhealthy way. But it also does damage to the individuals who would worship a preacher and put him in an unhealthy position because he just can't live up to that standard. Paul's saying at the end of the day, we're just preachers. Why does Paul use this sort of willful amnesia in these verses where he says, I baptized Crispus and Gaius and maybe the household of Stephanus. But besides that, I don't really know who I baptized. Why is Paul saying, hey, I didn't keep track of people that I baptized? He was showing them it wasn't important. What else? Why would Paul say, I don't remember who I baptized in Corinth? And what does this say to us about the way we should view the work that we do for the Lord? 
Paul didn't want it to be a popularity contest. Give God the glory and not us. What did Jesus say about doing good in Matthew 6? When you do good, don't let your left hand know what? What your right hand's doing. Don't boast about the things that you're doing. Proverbs 27 and verse 1. Don't boast about what you'll do tomorrow. Be worried about today and do the things that you could. We should all practice a little willful amnesia concerning the good that we do. It's great to do good and we should. But beware of keeping a ledger of, well, you know, last year I led 20 people to Christ. Well, that's great, but there are probably 20 more that need to be led to Christ, right? And so there's a danger in boasting of things we've done in the past because we might rest on our laurels and or we might not give the credit to God that's ultimately due to him. Why was Paul's preaching so successful? Why was Paul so effective in preaching the gospel in the first century? There's only one right answer to this question. Why was he so effective? Because God worked through him. God worked with him. God could have gotten anybody to do what Paul did. Now, Paul had some unique talents and abilities and some unique training. But at the end of the day, what made Paul effective, what made Apollos effective and Peter and any preacher who is effective today is the God that works through that individual and not the individual themselves. And preachers need to remember that, but also the individuals that are listening to preachers so that we're not divided as a result. All right. Now, let's go into verses 18 through 25 of First Corinthians. As Paul says, you've been called into the wisdom of God. In verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise and where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the folly that we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. And so now Paul is going to build his case about why the Corinthians shouldn't be divided over preachers. And the way he's going to do it in this section is you've been called out of division into unity. But now in verses 18 through 25, you've been called into the wisdom of God. What Paul is arguing in verses 18 through 25 to a group of people who are divided over their favorite preachers, he's saying this. You're smarter than this. Come on. You know better than this. And he's going to show him why. And the way he does it is he uses this Greek word wisdom, Sophia. He uses it 17 times in First Corinthians. He keeps talking about wisdom. Now, before we look at the references, what does it mean to be wise? What does wisdom mean? To have a knowledge based on history. OK, that's right. What else? What do we mean when we say someone's wise? Paul's going to con- contrast worldly wisdom with godly wisdom over and over again in this section. Okay. Yeah, that's right. To not only have the knowledge, but then to be able to dispense it. Roger. Yeah. Sometimes you watch the movies and the old wise man is sitting up on a hill with his feet crossed. And, you know, that's the wise person. Well, the Corinthians had their idea about what made people special and wise. But as was mentioned in the Bible, true wisdom 
is a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 and verse 7, that's the beginning of wisdom. The person that fears God and that honors him. Notice how many times in this section, really, but throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, that Paul is going to use this word wisdom. As the Corinthians were hung up on the Greek idea and the worldly wisdom, Paul is going to say, be impressed with the wisdom that God offers. And you might underline these or circle these. Next time you read 1 Corinthians, you'll remember in this section, Paul is driving at the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. He uses it in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the words of eloquent wisdom. He uses it in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In verse 20, he speaks of this idea that has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. In verse 21, he uses it twice at the beginning of the verse and then in the middle part through. In verse 22, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek after wisdom. He uses it in verse 24. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, he uses wisdom in verse 30 of chapter one. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And we won't do all of these, but into chapter two, you find the word wisdom in verse one, in verse four, in verse five, in verse six and in verse seven. Paul will not let go of this idea because he's driving home this reality to the Corinthians. True wisdom ultimately resides with God. And how does God use wisdom? Well, he uses it because God didn't focus on the individual that was preaching, but the message preached. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but not to those of us who believe. How is the gospel foolishness to those that are perishing? Why would Paul say that in verse 18? He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In what way is the gospel foolishness to individuals that are perishing? Why would Paul say that? The gospel is foolishness. In what way? They don't believe it? Yes, contrary to what the world considers to be knowledgeable or impressive. What else? The gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. Yeah. God's always going to be the smartest one, right? And God knows what's right, even if the world doesn't believe it. And so the gospel is foolish to those that are perishing because they don't see the value of it. But the Corinthians should know better. That's Paul's point. Look at verse 19. He quotes from Isaiah 29 and verse 14. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. And then Paul begins to just call out the intellectuals of his day in verse 20. Where is the wise? Bring them out. Where is the scribe and where is the debater of this age? God has already shown these individuals to be foolish. And Paul will talk about how God has done this. God has shown them to be foolish in that the way that God has saved humanity in verse 21 in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So God exercised his wisdom in this regard. How are you going to save humanity? Yes, through the death of Jesus. But how are you going to get that message out to individuals? God chose preaching. That's Paul's point. God chose preaching as the means to get that message out. If we were thinking of a way to save humanity and to get individuals reconciled with God, the last thing that most people would have chosen was a message that would be preached and communicated to people. But that's what God chose. Before Jesus ascended back to heaven, the last thing he says to his disciples is to go throughout all the world proclaiming this message. And in the proclamation of that message, as individuals hear it and believe it, That in and of itself has the power to change the lives of humanity. Nobody else would have thought of this but God. And Paul says this is how God shows his wisdom. It doesn't really matter who does it, whether it's Peter or Apollos or me or you, as that message is heralded. 
individuals' lives are changed. And that's what God is ultimately driving at. The Jews and Greeks of the first century prided themselves on different things. The Jews wanted a sign. And so when Jesus came on the scene in the Gospels, you often see them begging Jesus for more proof and more signs. The Greeks, they wanted wisdom. And it wouldn't make sense to a Greek individual that had a pantheon of gods that their God would die. And so Jesus dying, they would say, well, that's not great. That doesn't show him to be powerful. The Jews were unimpressed with Jesus because he didn't do in their minds enough miracles, though they didn't pay attention to the miracles that he did. And so Paul is saying the Jews and the Greeks missed Jesus because they were looking for something in him that God didn't want them to see. And this is a big point for us because it says to you and to me, God is exactly who he says he is. He's not who we want him to be. We don't get to make God in our image. God has made us what? In his image. The wisdom of God is in Jesus Christ. The gospel is preached and God has chosen to reveal his wisdom to humanity in this way. In verse 25, it says the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's point is that when men were at their wisest, God was wiser than them. And when men were at their strongest, even if in God's weakness, quote unquote, God was able to overpower the thought processes of human beings and to ultimately bring about salvation through his son. The Corinthians should see clearly what God did in the world was not what men would have expected. But in God's wisdom, it was the best thing that had happened. Let's close out chapter one, read verses 26 through 31. They've been called into the glory of God. The Corinthians have been. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul says in verse 26 that not many mighty individuals are called. In verse 26, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. What kind of people early on in the book of Acts obey the gospel? Fishermen, those are the people that Jesus called to be his disciples. If you were thinking about individuals who would have been the 12 disciples or apostles of the Messiah, you would have thought about people like Nicodemus. Why didn't he call Gamaliel and those types of individuals who knew the Old Testament law, many of them by heart, by rote memory. But Jesus chose fishermen. But even when Peter and John and the others went out preaching, what types of individuals were those that obeyed the gospel immediately? What was it? Your everyday pre- people, the common folks, right? Mark says the common people heard Jesus gladly. Mark 7 and verse 37. Yeah, the everyday people. On occasion, influential people obeyed the gospel. In Acts 17, and Luke will make mention of it. He'll say a few mighty and influential women or men obeyed the gospel. But typically, it was the everyday person. Why do you think that is? And is it still the same today? Would you say it's still the same with people obeying the gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul was able to relate to people. He was able to relate to common people. Yeah, sometimes it's easier to convert somebody who doesn't have any religious baggage. Maybe that's maybe that's the case. Yeah. The rich young ruler, he had a lot of things in his way, right? Mainly his possessions. Jesus loved him, but he loved his money more. And so he walked away. Yeah. 
Rich and affluent and successful people can obey the gospel, but sometimes they may have a difficult time because in their minds, they've got everything they need. Their heaven may be here. That's not always the case. There are many people that are blessed financially and in other ways that are faithful Christians. But typically, James chapter two talks about this. James two and verse five, that God has called the poor individual because a lot of people that have everything they need. You you wonder why just in a general sense, we can just take this off of individuals and just think about countries. You go on a mission trip, you go to a foreign country, you preach the gospel and three thousand people obey the gospel. Hundreds of people. The book of Acts type responses happen. You come here, you knock doors, and what do people say? Leave me alone. They hide, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses are going to get us, right? They hide in the blinds. But in other places, they walk miles to hear the gospel. And you can stand, and they don't just come to hear a 30-minute sermon. If you preach 30 minutes, somebody else has to get up and preach. They want you to keep preaching. And part of that is because they don't have the gadgets and battery power things like Neil talked about today that sort of distract. But it was the same way in the first century. And so Paul is saying God is called the lowly individual. God calls everybody and he wants everybody to obey the gospel. But the reality is percentage wise. And the Bible makes a big deal about this. The lowly individual is often the one that will respond. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We're running out of time here, but I just want us to notice in verse 27, really down through verse 29. God chose what is foolish and God chose what is weak to shame the strong. We should appreciate that God uses the weak. Why does God use weak things? Well, Paul tells us why in verse 29, so that no human being might get the credit. Now, this is comforting, but this is also a challenge for us. And since we're running out of time, I'll just get to the practical side of this now. God uses the weak. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has a thorn in the flesh and he prays. And then God denies his request and says, no, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so God uses the weak so that no one could say, well, of course they were successful because they were smart or strong or powerful. How many passages in the Bible? You think about David versus Goliath. And you think about the tiny nation of Israel overwhelming Egypt and then the Canaanites. God is often taking that, which most people would never think could bring victory to show that in the end, he's the only one who could do it. Think about Gideon. And he whittles the army all the way down to 300 men. So there'll be no mistake about it. And in your life and in my life, God is using us as weak things to do mighty things for him. So here's the challenge for us. We can't use the excuse. Well, I'm not talented. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough Bible. When we find ourselves in those moments, we should be saying, based on what we know in Scripture, well, great. You're in the perfect position for God to use you. You say, well, I don't know enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. Well, great. Let God use you. And so when he does, the only thing that people will be able to say, the only one who will get the credit will be God himself. We shouldn't say if I had more, I do more, I could be more and all of those things. No, God is in the business of using weak things and weak people all the time to do great and mighty things so that in the end, all of the glory goes back to him. And the person that boasts or brags in verse 31, Paul says, the one that glories, let him glory in the Lord. I don't know how good you are at this, but this is your challenge for this week. Try to develop and cultivate the spirit and the attitude that freely and easily boasts and brag on God and all that he's doing. If in our lives, the things that we're doing, we can say, well, I can show you the breadcrumbs. I can show you the trail that led to my success and why I did this and why I'm here and why I'm able to do all these things. Maybe somewhere in there we've forgotten that without him, we can't do anything. John 15, 5. Paul says the one that must boast. God's done this using weak people so that he could remove boasting. But if you must boast, brag on all that God has done. And all that God is doing in your life and pray this prayer. God, make me a weak thing 
and then use me in the way that you would have me to be used. The Corinthians shouldn't be divided over preachers because God doesn't use the sensational. God doesn't use the big names in the brotherhood. God uses the gospel message and he turns wisdom upside down. The people that we would think that God would use. God says, I'll just skip over him. Give me Matthew and pick the biggest terrorist in the first century. The apostle Paul, give me him. I'll take him and convert him and I'll make this Jewish man the apostle to the Gentiles. The world would never think of it. And maybe God has something in store for us that we would never think of for ourselves. Let God use us and then let us give him the glory. Our time's run out for this week. Next week we'll have a gospel meeting. And so that'll be David Decker will be presenting our Bible class. But we'll pick up with 1 Corinthians chapter 2 next week. Thanks for the comments and for your participation.